What is going on? We are on the air and it feels so good. Welcome to the very first episode of The Proving Ground, a podcast dedicated to UFC sports betting. Look, they said it couldn't be done. They said there couldn't possibly be one more sports betting podcast added to the internet. But we did it. We cracked the code. I'm your host, The Engineer, and I've seen every UFC fight for more than a decade. For years now, I've also been betting every card, where I've had some really strong results from a few different strategies. I started out years ago, like most people, doing a little research, betting with my eye, hoping for the best. Then I started to handicap money lines. Then I started to cap 30 to 50 markets on every single fight. You name it, I've tracked it and I've bet it. I've had a lot of people ask me for my fight breakdowns and sports betting advice, so we've decided to launch the Proving Ground podcast. We'll give you a quick breakdown of the card, a prediction for each fight, and tell you what we think of the money lines. Look, there's plenty of cappers out there who can do this for you, so we wanted to do something else, a little bit different. Debated the format of the show long and hard. Should we track all the different strategies we use each week? No, too complicated. Should we try one strategy one week and another the next? No, no one cares about my chalk strategies. So we thought, what would make for the most compelling listener experience? And here's what we settled on. In addition to the breakdowns and views on value, we're going to track 12 months of performance of our fearless long shot strategy. If you're listening to this, well done, getting in on the ground floor. If the strategy sounds a little crazy, it's because it is. It's also simple. Every week, we bravely go where the value takes us. We handicap hundreds of markets for every single card. If there's a significant edge that we calculate versus what the odds should be versus what's on offer at the book, we bet it, no matter how long the odds or how crazy the outcome. This can lead to a lot of losing weeks, some reverse sweeps and people saying, what were you thinking placing that bet? And worse still, it can sometimes lead to some pretty lean weeks where there just aren't many bets to place. This is what happens when you're disciplined on value. But it also leads to some huge wins that will leave people wondering how you possibly could have foreseen that outcome. It'll be a white knuckle ride, not for the faint of heart, so if you can't take the heat, you might have to get out of the kitchen. But on a rolling 12-month basis, we've had great results each year so far. So this year, we're doing it properly, recording and tracking everything. Will we return huge double-digit unit growth again or hit rock bottom? Let's find out. One quick point on this. These are real bets that I'm placing in real life with my own money. But the point of tracking the strategy on the show is to see if we can take the closing odds basically on fight night for a few hundred markets and see if we can find some value on ridiculous long shots. So we're not taking early lines as they drop here. There's no closing line value, which actually makes what we're doing a lot harder. I'll also post my bets each week on Twitter at the underscore engineer MMA each week before Saturday night. So make sure you give us a like and a follow. Beginning next week, we'll also finish each show by answering a question asked in advance by you, the Proving Ground community. So if you like talking UFC, if you like fight breakdowns and predictions, and if you love sports betting, you've come to the right place. We'll try to keep each episode to a tight 25 minutes, but let me warn you, today we're going to go a little longer to get things started. Usually we'll get these episodes out a little earlier in the week, but as for now, it is what it is. Let's get into it. So here we go. What better way to kick off the proving ground than with a huge pay-per-view, UFC 297 in Ontario, Canada. In the main event, we have Strickland versus DDP for the middleweight title. Now, I was there live when Strickland unceremoniously dethroned Israel Adesanya to capture the middleweight title. I remember the feeling in the venue as if it was yesterday. Round one starts, Izzy's looking good, 
Strickland gets a huge knockdown to end round one that left everyone shocked. No one in the arena could believe it. For the next five minutes or so, we sat with bated breath, just waiting. The arena was quiet. You could hear people whispering, any minute now, Izzy's going to give him the business. And we kept waiting. And it became clear that Izzy just wasn't going to pull the trigger, and Sean was happy to cruise to a decision win. I'd describe the vibe as surreal. Obviously, that was the main event. So once it was done, and keep in mind that the card happens during the day in Australia, so it's daylight outside, everyone just kind of looks at each other and says, do we just go home now? Okay. Unfortunately, that meant we didn't get DDP versus Izzy, at least not yet, but DDP versus Strickland is equally as fascinating. In the co-main event, we have Myra Bueno Silva versus Raquel Pennington for the vacant women's bantamweight title. Look, the women's bantamweight division is what it is, but I've always been a fan of both MBS and Rocky. Looking down the card, it is a bit top-heavy and it does get a little patchy down the stretch, but there are a few gems like Charles Jourdain, Sean Woodson... Arnold Allen, Movsarov Loyev to tide us over. And let me give you a little teaser here. At the end of this episode, I stumble upon some statistical madness that will absolutely blow your mind. I don't want to say too much just yet, but as a man who prides himself on tracking numbers, this is the first time I've ever looked at this particular statistic. And the first time that I've glanced at it on this very UFC 297 card made me laugh harder than anything I've seen in quite some time. So stay tuned. Let's get into the fights. Up first, we have Sean Strickland versus DDP in a five-round fight for the middleweight title. Right now, you can have Strickland at minus 107 with the comeback on DDP at minus 115. On the DDP side, there's a few things to like. He's got great momentum, six wins to start his UFC career with all but one coming inside the distance. I know people are obsessed with nose job DDP as the new mythical fighter who no longer has cardio issues now that he can breathe through his nose. And there's some truth to this. He can clearly breathe more freely now and through his nose rather than having his mouth wide open from early in round one. I've been a believer in DDP since way back when and I've cashed tickets on him time and time again. People see cardio issues and a lack of defensive responsibility because those shortcomings present in a very visual way, which means there's often value on DDP at the window. People can't shake the visual of DDP stumbling around, gasping to catch his breath. The Whitaker fight is the best example of this, given that Whitaker is such a technician with a phenomenal gas tank. No one gave DDP a chance. But you shouldn't confuse gas tank with durability. DDP gives 100% from the opening bell and throws each shot with everything behind it. As the fight wears on, he might slow down and have to take breaks before his next flurry, and those flurries may be increasingly infrequent as the fight goes on, but he doesn't quit on himself. I've had a few people ask me, DDP has more submission wins on his record than knockouts. Does DDP have an edge in the grappling? The short answer is, I think he does, but the real question is whether it will be available for him. We saw DDP make some really fundamental mistakes in wrestling and grappling exchanges a few fights ago against Brad Tavares, which almost cost him badly. Beyond that, we haven't really seen DDP lean on grappling in his UFC run to date, which is maybe not surprising given the breathing and cardio issues he's had until recently. Also, most of the submissions on his record are things like guillotines and rear naked chokes, so he's not out there locking up twisters on people. And keep in mind that Strickland has never been submitted and is extremely difficult to even take down. If they do end up on the ground, maybe after a scramble, I wouldn't be at all surprised DDP controlling Sean and inflicting heavy damage from top position. And this brings us to the main point here. DDP does have a huge edge in the power department. He does have true knockout power and ability. 
which is in fact what has led to most of the club and sub victories on his record. On the Strickland side, look, you might say Strickland is uniquely qualified to defeat DDP, given that Strickland has limitless cardio, relentless output, and simply marches forward at all costs. Like I said, Strickland's very hard to take down. I think he's been taken down only once since 2017. He will have an edge in the cardio, which will be important as the fight wears on. If Strickland can own the centre of the cage and keep DDP on his heels, he's well on his way to winning this fight. This could manifest itself in a couple of ways. Firstly, Strickland could push forward from the opening bell and look to limit DDP's offence, keep DDP on his heels and never let him get started. Secondly, DDP might come straight out like a bat out of hell and instantly claim the centre, with Strickland having to survive the worst of what uh, DDP has to offer and then outlasting him down the stretch. Pushing forward will largely limit DDP's avenues to victory, to being to just being landing a killer counter shot. Look, as we all know, Strickland can be vulnerable here. Just look at the Pereira fight. I think the fight's pretty simple. It largely comes down to who's moving forward and owning the centre. We know Strickland does best when he's pushing forward, bullying his opponent, not giving them space to breathe. He's very predictable. We know exactly what he's going to try and do. And make no mistake, Strickland can win. We just saw him outclass Izzy over five rounds after all. I think there's going to be moments where DDP looks like his old self, out of breath, without a game plan, all at sea, and I'll be wondering why I picked him. But I like the finishing upside on him here. And we know that as a consequence of Strickland marching forward, he's there to be hit. So I'm picking DDP to win this fight. Let's get into the betting side of things. In terms of money lines, there's a little value on DDP and none at all on Strickland. We'll give you our take on this for each fight, and sometimes it will run contra to our picks. So if you hear me sounding a little contradictory, you just have to remember that these are two entirely different things. More broadly in this fight, whilst DDP could of course crack Sean in round one, we see value on the fight going a bit longer, and we also see some value on late finishes. I think there's a little value on DDP by submission also, but tread with caution here. For our official bets, we've locked in. Fight starts round 4, plus 100, and fight starts round 5 at plus 150. In the co-main event, we have Myra Bueno-Silva versus Raquel Pennington for the vacant women's bantamweight title. MBS is sitting at minus 175 right now with the comeback on Rocky at plus 138. Look, MBS should be on a five-fight win streak here. Her last victory over Holly Holm in July was overturned to a no contest when MBS popped after the fight or banned substances related to her ADHD medication. I think the biggest criticism you could make of MBS is her strength of schedule. Without the home win, what is the best victory on her record? Arguably, Gillian Robertson back in 2018. Then she's also drawn with Montana De La Rosa and dropped decisions to Manon Ferro, who of course would be a huge favourite in this spot, and Marina Moroz, who's currently on a two-fight skid. But personally, I do think all of the above is a bit of a red herring. MBS is good and getting better, and a lot of these recent fights have been at bantamweight, which is not a stacked division by any measure. She's also very durable. MBS has never been finished, despite being hittable and having a negative striking discrepancy. And whilst MBS is a willing striker, she of course is a predatory grappler, and her striking game really works in support of setting up her submissions. On to her opponent, Rocky. Rocky's a true veteran of the game. It's crazy to think that at 35, she's only three years older than MBS. In five years, she's significantly older than that, with almost twice as many pro bouts on her record. 
Just quietly, Rocky's on a five-fight win streak and has won six of her last seven. She's the consummate professional, an active and competent striker with good defense, good wrestling, and a decent grappling game to match. I think she'll lean on the striking and clinch game here. She may look to do damage and control MBS if she ends up in top position through a scramble, but she's not an active finisher with only two finishes in her 17 UFC appearances. And I would have to say I would be shocked if Rocky finished this fight. In terms of how the fight plays out, look, on the one hand, MBS is very hittable and at times can put herself in danger. And there's a world where Rocky wins a striking and clinch heavy decision here. But I like the finishing upside on MBS and I think she's going to prove too much for Rocky in this spot, particularly over five rounds. In terms of money lines, if there's value on anyone, it's Rocky, but we'd probably just look at taking her by decision rather than the money line where there's a little extra value again. Beyond that, we see a little value in an early MBS finish. On to the next fight, Neil Magny versus Mike Mallott in the men's welterweight division. The Canadian is a big favourite. Right now you can have Mallott for minus 400, with the underdog Magny sitting at plus 310. Mike Mallott is riding a six-fight win streak, including his first three fights in the UFC. Malott will have the crowd on side for sure. He got a fantastic reception last time he fought in Canada. Malott is all gas, no breaks. In fact, 10 of his 12 fights have finished in the first round. His last five fights have seen four wins by chokes and one by TKO, so we know what we're dealing with here. And then Magni could be in trouble on the ground. But there's one huge unknown in this fight. Malott's three UFC opponents to date are Adam Fugit, who at the time was 1-1 one one in the UFC, Johan Lainess, who's on this card, who at the time was 1-1 one one in the UFC. Mickey Gall, no longer in the UFC, and the only time he strung together consecutive wins in his 11-fight UFC career was when he fought Mike Jackson, CM Punk, and Sage Northcutt many years ago. And who's Mike Mallott facing here? Neil Magny. The Neil Magny. The same Neil Magny who holds the record for most wins in UFC welterweight history at 21. The man who's beaten Jeff Neal, Robbie Lawler, Carlos Condit, Johnny Hendricks, Kelvin Gastelum, and more recently, and perhaps more impressively, the man who was two seconds away from seeing a third round against Shavkat Rachmanov. Look, I don't need to break down Neil Magny or his fighting style for you, so let's skip straight to how the fight plays out. We know Mike is going to come out strong. More than four significant strikes landed per minute, more than 2.5 takedowns attempted per 15 minutes. But keep one thing in mind. Neil Magny is feeling disrespected. He's increasingly finding himself in gatekeeper-like spots, and there was a lot of bad blood surrounding his last fight with the young Barkey and Ian Gary. Neil is all kinds of fired up lately, and you have to query how this will impact his performance. But Neil's seen it all before. Look for him to weather the early storm from Malot before outlasting him down the stretch. We just don't know enough about Malot's endurance in later rounds to know how he will fare later in the fight. But we do know how Magni will perform. If ever there was a time for Neil Magni to put in a you-all-must-have-forgot type veteran performance, it's in this spot. There's finishing upside of Malot here for sure, but I'm picking Neil Magni to halt the Malot hype train at home in Canada. Okay folks, this one's clear. If we're talking money lines, the value is squarely on Magni. There's value on Magni by decision here too, but at this price, I'd probably just take the money line. On the Malott side, it's really just a very early finish where we see any value at the books. And in the middleweight division, we have Chris Curtis versus Marc-Andre Barriou. 
Curtis is sitting at minus 190 with the comeback on MAB at plus 150. If we roll back to 2021 and early 2022, Chris Curtis was having a moment. He'd had a lengthy career prior to the UFC and really should have been here many years ago. At the time, he'd won four of his first five UFC fights before then going winless in 2023 with a no contest with uh, Nasadine Imovov and the loss to Kelvin Gastelum. Curtis's game can be a little one-dimensional, it's boxing heavy, and in recent fights we've seen the striking volume start to wane a little bit. He's had trouble finding and landing on his opponents. Taking one to give one is a pretty common strategy in the fight game, but if you look at the stats, Chris has a negative striking differential, absorbs almost 6.5 strikes per minute, you won't see much higher than that. And when he's taking that many shots and having trouble to actually find his opponent, that spells trouble. You won't see much grappling here. Curtis has never scored a takedown in the UFC. He's also very durable, having been finished only once in the past 12 years. On the MAB side, he's won five of his last seven, including his last two over Eric Anders and Julian Marquez. Look, if I was to nitpick here, I would say who is MAB's best win? Eric Anders, who's only won two of his last seven fights, maybe. No doubt there's a bit of padding on the resume and a bit of weirdness too, including a 16-second knockout loss to Chidi and Jakawani. But outside of that, he's been quite durable. If he's shown a weakness, it's been in the grappling, he's liable to get taken down, but as we've covered, that's not going to be a factor here. Expect these two to stand and trade, and it's probably only a desperation takedown or a clinch uh, or a scramble uh, that sees this fight hitting the mat. We've already covered the fact that Curtis hasn't scored a takedown in the UFC, and MAB has scored a total of two takedowns in his 11 UFC outings. So I think we see a striking heavy affair here, and look, Chris can knock MAB out if he gets to him. However, I'm wary over the trajectory that Chris is on, and until I see an uptick in his output and ability to actually find his opponent, I'll be picking against him. Not a lot of value to be had at the window here, folks. In terms of money lines, it's MAB, but beyond that, slim pickings. In the featherweight division, we have Arnold Allen versus Movsar Evloyev. Evloyev is your favourite at minus 200, with uh, Arnold Allen sitting at plus 160. Until recently, Arnold Allen was sitting at 10-0 and 0 in the UFC uh, until running into Max Holloway at the end of last year. This is one of those fights that we were all excited to see, but a lot of us also groaned and said, why are you resting a real contender like Arnold Allen on someone like Holloway, who's not going to get another shot at the title, at least while Volk is the champ, and who actually has a pretty decent shot of derailing Allen? And of course, that's what happened. But still, winning 10 out of 11 fights in the UFC featherweight division Uh, you must still be a very top contender. And Arnold has been rewarded here uh, with a fight against another real contender in Movsar Evloyev. You do have to wonder what the odds in this fight would be if Allen hadn't fought Holloway and instead skipped straight to the Evloyev fight. We know what we're getting here with Allen, a very competent striker with good defense, although he did really fall behind in the striking against Holloway as most fighters do. Allen stays busy with grappling and has improved his takedown defense. He actually used to get taken down quite frequently. Uh, In his first four UFC fights, three of his opponents were able to take him down. But since then, he's proved very difficult to get to the mat. On the Evloev side, how quickly the court of public opinion moves. After his fight against Diego Lopez, a fight which he won by unanimous decision, people could not sell Evloev's stock fast enough. The fact that Lopez had nearly caught him in a submission and briefly made life very difficult for him was enough to temporarily derail the Evloev hype train. 
Of course, since then, we've seen Lopez emerge as a real up-and-coming star, including his coaching role for Alexa Grasso, and the world is once again ready to recognize Evloev as a true contender. What we really saw here is that Evloev is durable and won't quit on himself, no matter how dire the situation. We know what we're getting with Evloev. An aggressive striker with a favorable striking differential, but expect him to use this to set up his real A-plus skill, which is the grappling and wrestling, with almost five takedowns per 15 minutes. His fights do have a habit of going long. Seven decision wins in seven UFC starts. And look, I think we're going to see the same here. Look for this one to go long. I think it will be competitive on the feet. Uh, uh, Alan should have a slight ex- advantage, but I could see either side taking a win here uh, in a stand-up match. But I think it all comes down to whether Alan can stop the takedowns of Evloev. If Evloev gets Alan down, I see him controlling Alan for significant portions of the round. I also think it will be hard for Alan to land on Evloev, given the defensive avil- abilities of Movsa. I'm picking Movsa Evloev to win this fight. In terms of money lines, they're strangely accurate here. And looking down the 45 markets that we're capping for this fight, unfortunately, there's not a lot of value to be found. Up next in the bantamweight division, we have Brad Katona versus Garrett Armfield. The double winner of the Ultimate Fighter, Brad Katona, is your favorite at minus 215 with the comeback on Armfield at plus 170. Now, look, I don't profess to be a fan of the Ultimate Fighter reality show, but even I couldn't help but notice... Katona was something of a story in 2023. It was a little hard to place, somewhere between a feel-good story, winning the Ultimate Fighter again and finding his way back into the UFC, and being a bit of a divisive figure. Apparently, he attracted mixed reviews on the show. But let's get into Katona the fighter. Katona's a very solid fighter who's never been finished, but over his two UFC runs, he's had five fights and they've all hit the cards. He did finish Bryce Mitchell prior to entering the UFC uh, in 2018 in his first run on The Ultimate Fighter. He's handy all around, but none of his metrics really jump off the page. Armfield has had a rough start to his UFC career, getting subbed by David Onama back in 2022. Uh, he He then did even the ledger in 2023, uh, finishing Kazama in the first round. And this brings us to the key point, the finishing upside on Armfield. At age 27, he's also five years younger than Katona, with a higher striking output and finishing intent. I see Armfield's paths to victory here as being a submission in the later rounds or a hard-fought decision win that sees him controlling uh, um, Katona on the ground for lengthy periods. I do think Katona is underrated, but given the finishing upside, I'm siding with uh, Garrett Armfield to win this fight. I do see a little value on the Armfield money line, but not enough to tempt me. Instead, I'd be looking for an Armfield prop finish or even just Armfield, perhaps by KOTKO. Up next, we have Charles Jourdain versus Sean Woodson in the featherweight division. Right now, you can have Jourdain at minus 215. The underdog Woodson is sitting at plus 170. Now, this is actually Jourdain's 13th UFC fight, if you can believe it. The man has been nothing if not active and consistent. Consistent in terms of activity, not in terms of outcomes. Over that run, he's never won more than two fights in a row. Actually, I think that does make him consistent, now that I say it out loud. And what would a win for Charles be here? His third win in a row. We're in streak territory, folks, which is reason enough to be excited for Charles. Charles is a very active striker, which sets up his choke-heavy submission game. Charles is very much a finisher, and I don't blame him for the unusual fight he recently had with Cron Gracie where essentially nothing happened. 
On the Woodson side, Woodson has only lost one of his last six UFC fights, but you have to look at the strength of schedule. That run includes a split draw against Luis Saldana, where Saldana would have finished him in the first round, but for an illegal knee. And I'm not sure how well some of Sean's other wins will age. But don't take that as too harsh of a criticism. Woodson is an extremely talented fighter with weapons-grade stand-up. That nickname, The Sniper, is very accurate. He's high volume on the feet, but he throws tactically and doesn't put 100% into every shot. I think this fight will be very competitive. Either fighter could take a decision here. Both are active and effective on the feet. Both can score a takedown, but both are also liable to be taken down. The finishing upside here is with Jordan, so I'm picking him to win the fight. In terms of money lines, however, the value is actually on Woodson. There's a little value in an early finish on either side too. In terms of things to stay away from, I'd say it's the Jordan money line and the Jordan decision. In the next fight, we have Serhi Saidi versus Ramon Taveras in the bantamweight division. Saidi is sitting at minus 186 with Taveras coming back at plus 148. Look, we'll keep this one brief. It's a rematch of a fight that was stopped extremely early on the Contender Series last year with Saidi scoring a controversial TKO win. It might look a little strange to see these guys fighting again so soon and in the UFC. But if you go back and watch that fight, it was a terrible stoppage and both guys wanted to run it back. Saidi hasn't fought since. Tavares has gone on to win on the Contender Series and get signed to the UFC. You do need to be careful about drawing too many inferences from their first fight because it didn't go too long. But what I saw was Saidi loading up with telegraphed high kicks that didn't come close to landing. Whereas Tavares was snapping Saidi's head back at will with jabs and straight lefts. Saidi did score a knockdown with the right hook, but to my eye, it was actually that Tavares was a little off balance when the strike connected, and he didn't look to be in too much trouble on the ground. Looking down Saidi's pre-contender series resume, it's not exactly stacked, and there's a couple of examples of him beating the same person multiple times. I'm not here to say that Tavares's record is stacked either, but he looked good in his most recent outing, and until the knockdown, I thought he was looking great in the first fight against Saidi. So I'm leaning towards Tavares to even the ledger here in his rematch against Saidi. Looking at the value and the money lines, unfortunately there's not much value to be had, but what little there is, is on the Tavares side. And up next, in the women's strawweight division, we have Gillian Robertson versus Pollyanna Viana. Gillian Robertson is sitting at minus 305, and right now you can get Viana at the lovely price of plus 235. Speaking of Octagon Tenya, can you believe that Gillian Robertson has had 15 UFC fights and she's still only 28 years old? Gillian also has never won more than two fights in a row in the UFC with her most recent two-fight win streak snapped by Tabitha Ricci last time out. Now, Gillian's a fantastic grappler, but she's quite low volume on the feet and if you look at her UFC losses, she's frequently getting outstruck or also taken down, where at times she can be a little too eager to settle in and hunt for a submission. On the Viana side, Viana is also a very high-level grappler, but a little more active on the feet, and with five knockouts, knockouts on her record, including her most recent victory uh, of a sub-one-minute KO over Jin Yu Fry. While she still favours the grappling, Viana is much more active and effective on the feet and has better striking defence. Looking at their records, both fighters are almost uniquely unqualified to win via decision. Let's hope that this one turns into the grappling match we're all hoping for rather than a 15-minute kickboxing affair. If there's an advantage in the wrestling, I'm tempted to give it to Gillian. 
whilst the fight should be very competitive in those critical moments, it may be Gillian who chooses where the fight takes place. That means I'm leaning towards Gillian Robertson in this spot. But in terms of the money lines, to me this one is clear. The value is on Viana. Not quite enough to tempt me, so instead we're locking in an official bet. Viana wins in round one for the very nice price of plus 950. And in the welterweight division, we have Johan Laness versus Sam Patterson. Johan's sitting at minus 152 with your underdog Patterson coming back at plus 123. And here we have, folks, two fighters with negative striking differentials, albeit with not the biggest sample size on the Patterson side. But you'll see why I mention this later. We'll keep this one brief, folks. Johan's had a patchy start to his UFC career, but he can crack. And Sam Patterson can be chinny, very chinny. We don't have a lot of data to analyze here, but I'm siding with Johan, who should have the edge in power and UFC experience. Once again, these money lines are set pretty well. If I had to pick anything here, it would be Lones by decision or just for the fight to go long. And that's how we've chosen to play it. We have an official bet down on this fight to hit the cards at plus 350. And in the women's flyweight division, we have Jasmine, Jazz Devicious versus Priscilla Cachuera. Jasmine is sitting at the very, very short price of minus 400 with a comeback on Priscilla at plus 300. Look, there's a lot of serendipity at play here at UFC 297, folks, because wouldn't you know it, we have another two fighters with negative striking differentials. In fact, Priscilla has one of the largest negative differentials I can remember seeing. Jasmine was having something of a moment in mid-2023, having won her second fight in a row against the very highly rated Miranda Maverick. That momentum was then somewhat derailed when she lost a decision to Tracy Cortez, and there's certainly no shame at all in that. Jasmine's a very solid fighter, a capable striker with a strong wrestling and grappling game. And in this, her sixth USC outing, you have to think she's going to be hunting for a finish in front of her home Canadian crowd. Priscilla's moment, meanwhile, was definitely 2022, when she'd won four of her last five. She only fought once last year, uh, actually also losing to Miranda Maverick by armbar. Priscilla is an extremely aggressive striker whose durability seems to leave her wholly uninterested in striking defense. If you look at a UFC record, she's been taken down in four of her five losses as well. I see this fight quite simply. If the fight stays on the feet, Priscilla is live. She's there to be hit, but she's extremely durable, having never been finished with strikes. Priscilla has power, but Jasmine has also never been finished. Jasmine's the rightful favorite in this fight, and if she's able to get to the fight to the ground, it's unlikely Priscilla will have much for her there at all. This is another spot where the bet will run contra to the pick. I actually think there's quite strong value here on the Priscilla money line at plus 300, and also a little on Priscilla by KO, TKO. But for our official bets, we've locked in the Priscilla Cachoeira money line at plus, at plus 300. And in the last fight of the night, or the first fight of the night, the last one that we're breaking down, we have Malcolm X Gordon versus Jimmy the Brick Flick. Malcolm is sitting at minus 225 with the comeback on Jimmy at plus 175. Look, what does UFC 297 need to get it started? Bangers. What do Malcolm Gordon and Jimmy the Brick Flick deliver? Certified bangers. And if we talk about card construction and placement here, this is in fact now our third fight in a row where both fighters have negative striking differentials. I think I'm starting to understand the programming rules over here at the UFC. In the case of Jimmy the Brick Flick, the number of strikes landed and absorbed per minute, the difference, 
is minus three. How is that possible? I don't know. And can I hit you with just one more set of statistics before we break today? Because we've already gone really long here. There's no easy way to say it, so I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it. Malcolm Gordon, takedown defense, 9%. Jimmy Flick, takedown defense, 0%. Now, I'm no big city lawyer, but it seems to me that there is a case to be answered here that the UFC, at UFC 297, the first pay-per-view card of the year and their triumphant return to Ontario, Canada, before giving you Jasmine Jastavicius versus Gillian Robertson and before giving you Johan Lerness versus Sam Patterson, are giving you Malcolm Gordon versus Jimmy the Brick Flick, a fight in which both men have negative striking differentials and have a combined takedown defense percentage of 9%. It's almost like they're stacking the opening of the card with people who like to get got. So look, in terms of my breakdown for this fight, Jimmy needs a submission and he likes to get knocked out. Malcolm likes to get submitted and he can seriously crack. It's been a minute since he's knocked anyone out though, so I'm picking Jimmy Flick to win this fight. In terms of money lines, there's a little value on Flick here, but more still, I think, on an early finish on either side. Not enough to tempt us, though. We'll sit back and watch how this card construction plays out. And there you have it, folks. Our first episode is locked. Thank you for being a part of it. We hope you enjoyed it and found it useful. To recap, our official bets for this week under the fearless long shot strategy are the main event to start round four and five at plus 100 and plus 150, respectively. Pollyanna Viana to win in the first round at plus 950. The Lerness and Patterson fight to go to decision at plus 350 and the Priscilla Cashwara money line at plus 300. That's all for now, folks. Don't forget to like, follow and subscribe on X, the underscore engineer MMA on YouTube at the Proving Ground MMA or by email engineer at theprovingground.mma.com. Best of luck with your bets and let's find out.